Blog Talk Radio. Yes, I can. How are you doing this morning? 
Um, fine, thank you. Fine, thank you. Yes. First of yes. all, I, I, I just want to thank you very much for inviting me to this forum. Um, I'm very pleased to you know, share what I know about this devastating disease. Um, just to clarify a few things, I, I do work for the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovation, mm-hmm. or also yeah, known as CEPI. Yeah, huh? yeah. Excellent. And, uh, that's when I was looking for yeah. my notes, and for some reason I Absolutely. lost track. Yeah. Uh, as we get into the discussion, Dr. DeCosta, I, I remember I was joking with you. I was like, uh, it looks like I'm the only Zambian getting to meet you or to know you now. Everybody else <laughs> in my social media platform seems to know you. There, a cool gentleman who was on my brother's lineup. I went to school with him. So I was like, where have I been? <laughs> so you are originally yes. from Gambia. And uh, how did you find yourself yes. in Zambia before we get into the COVID-19 things? Yeah, so it, it's a very unusual um, background and childhood I have. Um, I'm mm-hmm. actually only half, half Gambian. My mother was from Gambia, my father from Ghana. Uh, but my parents okay. met in the U.K., um, back in the day, as you know, both are British colonies like Zambia. And, yeah. um, you know, they were both sent to university in UK, you know, um, mainly because there was no university in Gambia and, and in, in no law school in Ghana. So that's how mm. they met. So I, I, I grew up in England for the first 10 years of my life. And then I spent uh, my high school years in Gambia. And, of course, Gambia not having a university, you know, other countries in Africa were kind enough to find places for us few Gambians who graduated from high school, only about 25 or okay. every year. And uh, mm-hmm. I, I was fortunate to have Zambia as a choice. Um, at the time, my mother was working in World Health Organization, public health in Malawi, so I, I chose to come to Zambia. And that's that. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, that, that, yeah. that explains it. And uh, it, it's interesting, fascinating. Um, we Our topic today is about the the pandemic, this thing that has just hit the world like uh, no, no words can express it. And the figures, Dr. Dacosta, don't seem to be looking any good. And what I wanted us to do today is help everybody understand that, look, let's not uh, sort of what, become complacent. This thing is serious. It's real. So I, I just want us to walk through some things uh, on the best of the ability that you can do. Very simple starting questions. What are the common symptoms that one should look for concerning COVID-19? Certainly, Nathan. I'm going to very quickly um, say a quick disclaimer. Um, because mm-hmm. I do work for CEPI, um, you know, anything, any of my responses, my opinions are purely mine uh, and do not reflect those of CEPI. Uh, necessarily, so yes. just to get that out of the way. And, and your first question relates to the symptoms of um, COVID-19. And um, as we know, uh, the common symptoms that people generally know about are the fever, the cough, the shortness of breath. Uh, and these were the first symptoms that um, were sort of made public when this disease began to emerge but we know now that there are up to about 15 different symptoms associated with COVID-19. And these can all be presenting symptoms at the time. And most recently, these have been clustered into six groups of symptoms, uh, combinations where the 
the groups four, five, and six are the ones that are the worst. But just to double back on your question very quickly, uh, cough, fever, shortness of breath are very common symptoms. Loss of smell, Mm -hmm. sense of smell, sore throat in some instances, muscle pain, and very nonspecific symptoms, again, like, like fatigue, headache, hoarseness of voice can happen, loss of appetite. In some patients, they experience uh, diarrhea and abdominal pain, more abdominal symptoms. Others may experience chest pain. Some may experience confusion. So this is the sort of conglomeration of symptoms that you can have. But there are some key symptoms I wanted to call out that are most associated with severe disease, where you are more likely to wind up in hospital. Of course, we know that shortness of breath is high on that list. Uh, also, um, patients who get confused, uh, patients mm-hmm. who have abdominal pain, those with diarrhea, uh, those who become very fatigued, these tend to be markers of hospitalization. Okay. Um, and uh, so, you know, it, 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 it's a rather complex picture, but we know that there's some key symptoms in hospital. Shed some more light on the word you are using. I don't want us to presume that we all understand. When you say confused, yeah. what, 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 how does that look like? What, what does that imply? So with, yes, with confusion, people may say, usually they're saying things that don't make sense. Okay. Um, or they don't understand when you speak to them, as mm. they normally would. If you give them a command, they may not understand what you're saying. And you will quickly realize that they're not able to process information that's being put their way, either verbally or through other signals. And they react inappropriately. That is what mm-hmm. confusion is. Mm. Okay. Oh, yeah, I think that, that makes sense. I just wanted you to clarify that. There's a common phrase that whenever you listen to a discussion on COVID-19, Dr. Costa, on TV, radio, whatever, when they the professionals or medical people are speaking asymptomatic, okay? Yeah. You know these terminologies. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What, when we say, I, I just want us to break things in their simplest terms so that everybody understands. Yeah. Asymptomatic. Yeah. What is asymptomatic? Uh-huh. means is um, devoid of symptoms. That means no symptoms. In other words, no symptoms. you have mm-hmm. the infection. Yes. You have the infection, you have the virus on board, but you don't show any of the symptoms that I mentioned at all. You're, you feel normal. Mm. You, so you're walking around like a normal human being. You don't feel a thing. That's what it means. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And, and, and that, now, that occurs a lot in COVID in the early stages. Yeah. Yes, I've seen that. It, it, it keeps coming up. Can a person who, who is asymptomatic infect others? Absolutely, and this is the problem with, um, with, with, with COVID-19. And I'm going to just branch off a little bit into the terminology we just talked about. So asymptomatic, there is another terminology known as pre-symptomatic that you might come across okay. sometimes. And pre-symptomatic simply means those who are asymptomatic who at some point are going to get symptoms. Mm. Because when we look at the history of how this uh, illness has evolved and we now have more knowledge about it, uh, we know that a lot of asymptomatic people will subsequently begin to get symptoms, of which 
a subset of those may end up with more serious disease and end up in hospital. So you may be asymptomatic today, but subsequently within a few days, a few weeks, you may be quite symptomatic, and that may either be mild or sufficient to get you into a hospital. So those are two terms that are important to, 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 to know. The other okay. thing I have to say about being asymptomatic, based on the second part of your question, is that it doesn't mean that you are not a danger to others. And in fact, yes. it's been well documented that people who transmit the disease to others are very often asymptomatic. They may not have symptoms, but they have the virus on board. But because those who are around them or exposed to them are susceptible in some way to getting mm. symptomatic disease or getting more severe illness, and, and we hear about elderly people, we hear about people in certain risk categories. For example, patients with diabetes, people who have immunocompromising conditions such as HIV or, or who are on immunosuppressive treatment for cancer, people with heart disease, kidney disease. Um, these are all people who are more susceptible than the average human being. Therefore, if they're in the presence of an asymptomatic person who has mm -hmm. the virus on board and doesn't know it, are prone to getting that virus, prone to getting very sick, winding up in hospital, and often die. This is the, the, one of the sad things about this illness. Mm -hmm. Interesting, interesting. Those of you that are listening to us, we're talking to Dr. Christopher Dacosta. We're discussing um, COVID-19 and how that still very much with us, and we, we need to take it uh, seriously. Those of you that have called in, if you would like to ask a question or you'd like to make a comment uh, about anything, Dr. the medical people, that those of you that have called in, if you'd like to make a comment on what Dr. Dacosta is discussing, please press one on your phone so that I know uh, that you want to say something. What do we need to understand about the importance of wearing masks, washing hands, sanitizing, physical distancing? Uh, are there known? Are there any known? Because at times you read in the you read about these things online, Doctor Dacosta. You listen to the news. They are saying this company has recorded certain brand of sanitizers, certain masks that don't work. Can you speak to that point? Absolutely, absolutely. So the first part of your question was relating to some of the public health measures. Uh, just in general, you know, washing hands, uh, using hand sanitizer, wearing masks, physical distancing, which sometimes is mentioned to, as social distancing. Uh, yes. And I wanted to emphasize at this point that this is the most important part of disease control uh, for, um, you know, this, this, this disease at the moment as we know it. Forget mm. about vaccines, therapeutics, all the other things, but these public health measures are what will make the biggest difference at this point in time where we are. And what has made a big difference in many countries, what has been uh, done in many countries that once people have then began to slack off a little bit has led to rebound uh, of, of illnesses. So just to reemphasize, uh, wearing of masks, there's no question or controversy that wearing masks helps to reduce transmission. And um, it not only helps to prevent people who may have the virus from transmitting the, the, the virus who may be more susceptible, 
uh, and from preventing asymptomatic people from spreading the virus without knowing it to people who are more susceptible. But it also provides a certain level of protection of the person wearing the mask as well okay. um, from others. So it's a two-way, it's a two-way thing. Um, it's more effective, masks are more effective in, preve- in, in preventing infection to going to other people, but they also, you know, to some extent uh, will, will protect you. Now, there are different types of masks, and they all have different okay. levels of, of effectiveness when it comes to this. Uh, and we know that just from, to go to the extreme, we have the, um, what they call the N95 or masks, which are the ones that are specifically made for healthcare workers. Uh, mm-hmm. And they're called N95 because they're supposed to filter out 95% of all particulate matter, including small particles like aerosols with viruses in them. Uh, and these are used usually in the healthcare setting, and they should be reserved for the healthcare setting because, um, yes. you know, they, they require a specific way of being fitted to healthcare workers, you know. When doctors are signing up for the first time in the hospital, certainly when I was signing up in my local hospital on the staff, we were required uh-huh. to do a fit test for an N95 mask. And you can imagine that was years ago because it's recognized wow. that these are very important as part of disease control in general, you know, infectious disease control, and there may be instances where you need to wear a mask to isolate yourself from patients or, or to be isolated from patients who have a, a, a contagious disease. So N95, yeah. just to en- emphasize, those really should be for healthcare workers. Uh, the second thing is that the masks that we all wear in general in public um, may be from a variety of different um, fabrics. Um, mm-hmm. you know, but the important thing is that they all have a potential to, to do the job to a certain extent, to varying extents. The mm-hmm. research suggests that cotton masks are more yes. effective than, say, uh, other, most other fabrics. But also if you have a mask that has multiple layers, you know, you see now people are producing a lot of masks, those that produce multiple layers, or those that have a, a filter that you can insert in the mask, uh, you know, those are a little bit more effective in preventing transmission and also protecting you um, from you okay. know, acquiring the illness. So there's a varying degree, but anything you do in terms of covering up has got some effect, uh, and it's very important. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll move on to the, the hand sanitizer. Quick word about washing hands. We all know that the... the um, recommendation is that you wash your hands either with soap and water uh, for 20 seconds. That's the kind of mm-hmm. standard. And, and that's based on research that has actually shown, you know, what bacterial counts are like when you wash your hands. Uh, even without soap, you know, using water um, can mm-hmm. help physically remove a lot of bacteria. But we know that soap has an additional effect of actually killing bacteria. Now, in terms of viruses, right, there is some... Uh, also degree of protection from soap. Uh, this is where the sanitizers come in because they have alcohol in them. And a minimum of 60% uh, uh, of ethyl alcohol or ethanol. Um, mm-hmm. And in, in most instances, you see that good hand sanitizers have 70%. A minimum of 60% is required to have a virus-killing effect. Uh, that is known okay. to, kill, to, to, to kill SARS-CoV-2 and other related viruses. Um, but then let's segue into the issue, the problem in the second part of your question, where, where you asked about, you know, this issue of many sanitizers being taken off the market and so on. That yes. is a very real problem. 
I'm, I'm glad you brought up this, this question, Nathan, because it's currently a very real problem, certainly here in the United States where I am. Uh, the FDA, which is the agency that regulates the use of any product related to health, including sanitizers, they have mm-hmm. banned the use of 75 brands as it stands now. You wow. can go on their website and you can see listed 75 brands of hand sanitizer. And the reason okay. is that instead of ethanol, ethyl alcohol, which is the reason mm-hmm. I emphasize the name, they they contain what's known as methanol, another form of ethanol, of alcohol, which is a very very dangerous substance. So this met, these are all there are 75 brands from 15 companies. Almost all these companies are based in Mexico. Um, <laughs> and as you know, the U.S. imports. Uh, uh, you know, such items because they're much less expensive. So a lot of companies import them because they have a better profit margin when they sell them. Unfortunately, the methanol content can lead to very serious problems if you use the hand sanitizers. And you don't have to drink the hand sanitizers, which, funnily enough, some people do. In Quite a few people in the United States have been drinking hand sanitizer and ending up with blindness uh, or death as a complication. So it oh has happened goodness. quite a few times. But Seriously? the most oh. important thing to em- emphasize here is that you don't have to drink it. Just using it on your skin to wipe your hands, it gets absorbed through the skin, this methanol. And it can also oh. go on to cause blindness uh, and all kinds of other complications. Uh, some not quite oh. severe, but you know, the, the potential for blindness and death is there. So this is why the Excellent. FDA has been very strict here. So I would recommend to anyone anywhere in the world, before you use a hand sanitizer, look, to look and see where it's made, what it contains. Um, okay. Make sure there's no methanol. But in fact, most people that put methanol in hand sanitizer won't even label it as such. So it, one has to be extremely careful. Okay? So the best thing to do concerning sanitizers is go to the FDA website and see mm-hmm. ones which... Can, are not recommended. Absolutely. Uh, and that will work for people I know certainly in the United States. I'm, my concern is other parts of the world, you know, because, That's the, you know, companies that make these things will, will take advantage. And mm. um, I'm concerned that in other countries, you know, that have other suppliers uh, mm-hmm. that, you know, have these products that are not appropriately labeled, that they'll be susceptible to these problems. So use the, the products that you know have been tried and tested that you've been using for a long time before COVID started is what I would recommend. Mm. If you have hand sanitizers you know of that were on the market before, um, that were well-established, that people have used that, obviously if they had problems, they would have come to light, you know. Um, those mm. ones would be the safest to use rather than these new ones coming on. You don't know anything about them that could cause a problem. Uh, before my, anybody else jumps in here, um, I have my colleagues with me, and uh, it's good to have Dr. Kazila with us. Uh, my friends in the Canadians have come out strong today. On, on washing or reusing the face mask, Dr. Dacosta, is that all right? Yes. You, you know, especially the cloth ones, you can wash it, yes. use it, that's fine, right? Yes, that is, that is absolutely fine. The important thing to be careful about is that as you wash them with time, you know, some of the mm-hmm. fabric will fray 
and the efficacy of the or effectiveness of the face mask may reduce with time. So be prepared mm-hmm. to replace it. You know, that's the important thing. But yes, absolutely. Um, actually, that's one of the advantages of, of, of using non-N95 or non-surgical masks. Surgical masks are the ones we see commonly used in hospitals. We also see people commonly using them out on the street. Those are really not to be washed because they don't really uh, retain their integrity as much as your own cloth mask that you, you have. Um, okay. And, um, yeah, so that, that, that's very important. You know, the, the downside about surgical masks and N95 masks is that they're not washable. So if you have an N95 that's supposed to be used in a healthcare environment and, you know, you, you have virus that essentially hits that mask and then you take it off and you put it down and then you pick it up again to, later on, you may cross-contaminate. Um, you know, so one has to be careful about that. The other issue with right. N95s is there are some N95s that have a filter um, that you see that allows people to breathe a little better. Better. Some of those that are uh-huh. being used in the public. And there's a downside to filters because the air that goes in out of, and out of that filter is not appropriately filtered. It, 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 it's allowing you to breathe better. It's, it, it's unfiltered air, in fact, that goes through those what they call little filters. So I, I don't favor uh, those. Um, yeah. Okay. So those okay. are look cute and fancy and... It makes you breathe a little better because the issue people are having with masks is uh, the breathing component. So even if they make mm-hmm. you breathe better, they are not, you do not recommend them. Uh, I would not recommend them based on current studies. You know, and there have been very, some very uh, good studies being done. This is based on evidence. You know, there are studies being mm-hmm. done in particular in Australia and also in conjunction with um, universities here in the United States. Um, in Arizona, Arizona State University in particular is doing quite a bit work of work on masks, all these different masks. And the yeah. evidence thus far, you know, is, is quite clear. And it's some of what I've, I've, I've actually been talking about. Okay. Now, before I let uh, others come in, I need to ask this question so that we transition very quickly. The impression we are getting or one is getting is that there is no known medication for the coronavirus. So what type of treatment are patients patients getting when they get admitted or they're going to the hospital? So so I have to qualify the answer to that because when we talk about medication for the virus, Uh um, we are talking about two general categories. One is medications that actually act directly on the virus or antivirals. And then those that act on the disease process uh, of COVID-19 that don't necessarily act directly on the virus but have effects on the disease in other ways. Um, it's, it's only partly true that there's no known medication for the virus because there are certain antivirals that have been demonstrated to be able to um, kill the virus or to block its activity. Um, it's just that the studies are ongoing to make sure okay. that we know how effective they are when they should be used, who would benefit. Um, so the examples there are remdesivir, remdesivir which is um, you know, now established almost as standard of care when you can get hold of it. Um, and then there are other antivirals that are being tested that should beginning to show some evidence uh, of effectiveness in certain well-selected patients. Uh, and another one is, is, is a drug that's used in HIV known as a combination of lopinavir and ritonavir, 
Um, uh-huh. That combination has shown some evidence of efficacy. But the studies are ongoing to get to know more about how to best select the patients, when to use these drugs. Uh, and it's not a, they're not blanket therapies for all. And the reason being that there's an evolution of this disease process where the virus um, is present. It then begins to bind to those cells in the upper respiratory tract, in the lungs, and so on, and then to internalize itself into those cells. And once it internalizes itself, it, it, it triggers a cascade of events that are only indirectly related to the virus per se. So even if you were to kill the virus, there's, there's somewhat a point of no return beyond which there's a cascade of inflama- inflammation, uh, what we call mm-hmm. coagulopathy, that clotting, and other events in the body that you, know, you, cannot, you cannot influence very much anymore. So that's where other treatments may come into place. Um, so it, it's kind of uh, a very bit of a complicated space. Um, before I move on, I quickly want to talk about the, the essential care that most people will get when they get into hospital, which is known as supportive care. And supportive uh-huh. care is everything else you do apart from attacking that virus specifically. Uh, and in most cases, in most parts of the world, this is all the, these are the only options we have. And that is most importantly treating the symptoms the patient has come in for. Very often, the key symptom is shortness of breath, and that requires use of oxygen. Uh, and mm. the use of oxygen is given in, by various levels of increasing amount of oxygen delivery. So it could be given by a nasal cannula, that is uh, the two prongs that are put into your, into your nose. It can be given by a, a face mask, a mask that's put on your face. Uh, there are other types of masks that prevent a rebreathing of the air. Uh, what they call non-rebreathers. My medical colleagues will be very familiar with those. And, of course, um, eventually, you know, you may end up going into the intensive care unit and being put on a ventilator after having a tube put down your throat uh, or intubated, as we call it. So uh, varying degrees of oxygen delivery. And so oxygen delivery is a key part of supportive care. There is also, you know, treating the fever as, as needed. You, um, you know, some people will use, uh, you know, paracetamol or other uh, anti-fever medication to treat fever as necessary, uh, treating uh, any tendency towards infection or any uh, potential secondary infection, especially if you have lung involvement. Antibiotics mm-hmm. uh, will then come into play um, for that reason. Uh, if you are septic, that is, you have an evidence that, you know, you made the virus maybe circulating around or you have a secondary bacterial infection that is causing a sepsis, you know, um, that if there, 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 there's any hint that bacteria may come in after the virus, you want to give antibiotics. You may give them uh, to prevent that or to treat that. So there's several other things you, you can do surrounding attacking that virus that may help the patient and very often does and very often prevents them from becoming very severely affected. Mm, excellent. We're talking to Dr. Christopher da Costa. The purpose of this discussion is to help us understand, uh, like him and I were discussing, he helped me understand a lot, a lot of knowledge has been acquired since this thing happened, the pandemic, the coronavirus. So we're trying to help ourselves as a community to understand that this is real, serious business. And Dr. Da Costa is here just to give us some basic information here and there. Uh, before we continue with our discussion, let me allow my colleagues and people to ask questions. Matilda, not Matilda, 
Clotilda, good morning. Morning, Brother Nathan. How are you doing? I am much, much better now. Okay. Did you have a question or you wanted to share something with us? I have a question. Good morning, Dr. DaCosta. Can you say something about uh, ground glass attenuating the lungs? Yes, I can say some, some, some of that to the extent that I know it. Now, I'm not a radiologist, but, um, you know, there are certain appearances in the lung uh, that appear to be highly uh, associated with COVID-19 and predictive of COVID-19. So early in the days when the disease was just becoming known, um, and, I, and that, when I say early in the days, it's not 100 years ago, but it's actually um, more like a few months ago, um, you know, the radiologists who did some studies um, in New York City where, you know, they realized that, you know, patients who are being, having uh, imaging of their lungs done, and this was really mostly by CT scans, what we call a CT scan or, or computerized tomography scan of the lung, which is a very sophisticated kind of x-ray you can think about that takes various cuts of the lung and looks at various sections of the lung. Um, they saw certain typical appearances um, known as the ground glass appearance. Um, it looks like you take glass, you smash it, and you grind it, and you have these little tiny bits that glitter. You know, that you know, appearance in the lung seemed to be very typical of patients who had COVID-19 lung involvement. So they even pushed the theory that, you know, you can make a diagnosis of COVID-19 based on the appearances in the lung. And they did some studies which showed that there was quite a high degree of sensitivity for diagnosing, um, you know, COVID-19 just based on those appearances without even knowing the test results. Then obviously they, they matched up with the test results and showed that, you know, this, this indeed was COVID-19. The problem with that approach is that it's not fully sensitive. You know, not everybody is going to get lung involvement primarily, um, mm. but also the specificity, there are other conditions that can cause, uh, you know, that appearance that are not necessarily COVID-19. So as a diagnostic, a primary mode of diagnosis, it's not recommended, but as an ancillary uh, diagnostic tool, certainly um, it, it, can, it can draw your attention to COVID-19. Uh, nowadays, testing is much more um, readily available and sophisticated in some instances. Uh, and um, then, so this would be somewhat moot, but it tells you that the disease process is, 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 in, is in the lung. You also can also see these um, appearances begin to recede or get better when you treat these patients. And, you know, it can be a good way of monitoring, you know, their treatment, how the lung is doing um, uh, in the treatment. And the, the, the location of these um, appearances is quite also very typical as to where they are located within the lung. And that also helps to narrow it down to COVID-19. Mm, excellent. Okay. Uh, the Canadians, good morning. <laughs> yeah, good morning, uh, Dr. Acosta. Uh, I have a few small questions here. Uh, I've taken the test, it came negative, but I'm one of those people for some reason believe there was this day I had like a terrible five minutes uh, where I could uh, breathe. Uh, was that mm -hmm. the question is was I just scared or uh, what what was that uh two 
I'm not sure if you talked about the confusion. Uh, uh, number two is, okay, the same question first, Dr. Costa, uh, is the antib ant antibodies testing uh, to see if you mm -hmm. had uh, uh, coronavirus uh, available right now or what is uh, the case there? Um, okay. yeah. Developed countries, I'm not sure how you are following up issues. Say, for instance, in Zambia, um, it's becoming, uh, it takes forever to test. And those who are testing privately, mm -hmm. they are paying quite a bit mm -hmm. uh, to be yes. to be tested. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm not mm -hmm. sure what discussions uh, in your field uh, we are having so, so as to help yeah. our people. Yeah, this is a very, very important question you've brought up because, it, it, in fact, there's been a lot of discussion about testing. I'm sure my, my medical colleagues online will, will agree that that is one of the most, it's been one of the most contentious issues regarded to antibody testing. Um, we know that the, the, the regular diagnostic testing is, is, is mostly done using a method known as a PCR or polymerase chain reaction uh, test, uh, uh, real-time PCR test. Uh, and the, 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 there's no big issue with that at the moment, although initially there were concerns that there were so many different um, such tests and they had different degrees of uh, sensitivity and specificity, which we can talk about later on if you want me to elaborate on that. But now that is sort of narrowed down and most of the tests are able to function uh, within the range that they should be functioning. But the antibody test has been controversial because what happens is when you get a viral infection, or indeed any infection from any organism, you, your body reacts by producing what are known as antibodies. Your body is reacting to produce these things, which some of them or a subset of them you hope will actually bind onto that virus and to help clear it from your body. Now, it turns out that a lot of antibody responses are just there. They don't have a, a significantly effective role in, in clearing the, the virus, but they're just a marker of the virus being present. And, and when you look at the current tests for antibody, basically what they do is that they take a, a sample from you, which is usually a blood sample. You can get it from other parts of the body as well. And then you look to see if this person has one of two types of antibodies. Um, one is called, we call IgM, and the other is IgG. So the M antibodies, they tend to uh, begin to show up pretty early on after you acquire the virus. So they, within the first week to 10 days, if, if you've acquired the virus, you're likely to get this IgM response. But then it, it, it tends to, once it gets to its peak, it tends to fall rapidly so that by the end of the first to second week, those antibodies disappear. But they're very useful in giving an indication that you very recently acquired the virus. Now, when you acquire the virus, you also begin to gradually build up what's known as the G response, the IgG response, which is slower to, to rise to a peak. And then the question is, does it fall over time? And how long over time does it fall? That's partly an, an answered question. But the tests that are done are meant to pick up either one or both. Most of these are meant to pick up both um, IgM and IgG that will give you an indication of if you've been exposed to the virus. And that's pretty much it. A lot of people think, okay, should I use this as a diagnosis or a diagnostic test as to whether I have uh, COVID-19? The problem is that um, as a diagnostic test, first of all, as I said earlier on in disease, it may be negative when you do have 
um, you know, the first few days when you do have the virus and you give you a false sense of security that you're okay if you don't do the regular reverse transcriptase PCR test. Uh, secondly, um, you know, if you take this, say, having acquired the virus two weeks or three weeks ago, you may have a high IgG level um, that persists, mm. but it doesn't yeah. give any indication as to, A, if you're going to become symptomatic, or B, if it's protecting you in any way. That's the problem we have with these tests. But they do have a role. The role of these tests is more of helping with disease control. If we go into various populations to say, what's the intensity of disease in this particular geographic area, in this particular demographic group or population, and you do these antibody tests, they can give you a sense of how intense infection is circulating in that environment. It can help public health officials then target those environments for um, disease control measures, make sure they're in place, tracing if there's anyone who comes up with the disease, they, they know where to intensify their efforts, and so on and so forth. So there are, there's definitely a role of antibodies. Nowadays, it's more so in helping with disease control efforts. One thing I have to say before I finish is that some countries are misusing the whole antibody test concept uh, or mm. potentially misusing it. And this is some governments that are saying, well, if we can test people and show that they have antibodies, then we can use that to, to, to prevent them from travel, restrict their movement, institute these draconian measures to restrict freedom of movement, et cetera, based on what they call a, a, a COVID-19 passport uh, or a COVID-19 immunity passport. Um, mm-hmm. uh, or on the other hand, use it on the, in the other way to say, okay, these people have antibodies. They have been exposed, but they have antibodies. Therefore, they are protected. So we can allow them not to wear masks or not to you know, self-isolate and so on. They can use it in the other way. So it, it can be misused. Um, and in some instances, apparently, it is being used. So I'll leave it at that. I'm sure my colleagues will have a lot to say about this and have, uh, you know, more to add. But it's a very long-winded, complicated uh, topic, which we wouldn't be able yeah. to do justice <laughs> to in the time uh, that we so have. We, 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 have a, uh, this, uh, we have a special person here with us, uh, a friend, a co- mm-hmm. Mr. Dillion Longwe, is a COVID survivor. He was in a coma mm-hmm. for 10 days. Uh, wow. Mr. Longwe, good morning, and we thank God for you being here. Hello, Mr. Longwe. Hello. Hello, good, good morning. morning. Good morning. We thank God for your life, sir. Yeah, thank you, everybody. Thank you very, very much. Mm-hmm. You you had a question for, for Dr. Da Costa? Dr. Da Costa, good morning to you, sir. Good morning. Hey, um, I've been listening to you very, very carefully, and uh, exactly uh, that's what I went through, um, through the, you know, the breathing, breathing tube and the feeding tube. I had that for mm-hmm. a minute. My question is, what are the side effects of the virus after you recover? Because mm-hmm. it's kind mm-hmm. of uh, not very predictable, you know? So from the uh, uh, professional uh, advice or what have you really noticed, I also give an mm-hmm. example. When I tested positive, mm-hmm. everybody around me tested negative. So right. I don't even know where I got the virus. And it was a, mm. a big strain of uh, the uh, COVID-19 I had because everybody 
good, just quarantine and they'll be fine. But I couldn't because mm-hmm. my uh, my oxygen uh, level was like 62 somewhere there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which mm-hmm. was like wow. uh, maybe three, really three, low, yeah. three, which was like three liters. So the yeah. moment wow. I got to the hospital, wow. the doctor mm-hmm. just simply asked me to make a decision real quick because he mm-hmm. told me he didn't have time because there were so many people by, you know, behind me, you know. Mm-hmm. So he just asked me to make a question, either to go on a vent or he put a, a breathing tube down my throat because they tried mm-hmm. to put a mask and uh, mm-hmm. I don't know the terminologies, but they blasted it to the, you know, the, the full volume, but my mm-hmm. lungs still couldn't get the yeah. required oxygen that I needed. And I was Absolutely. so disoriented. I couldn't mm-hmm. talk. It took away my voice. I could see, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. all I wanted was just to close my eyes and sleep. So my yeah. question is, what are the long-term, if there is any yeah. of side effects of the virus? Is it possible yeah. I mean, to get it again? Mm-hmm. My other question is, is there a possibility yeah. I can get it again? Mm-hmm. Okay. So I, I will try and address those questions the best of my ability. First of all, I have to say, I think, um, you know, you're coming through what you went through is a blessing. Um, it's mm, these days, yes. you know, it's very difficult to recover once you're intubated. There's a 50% chance of recovery in the best healthcare system, um, you know. So wow. you can imagine how it is outside of, um, you know, once you get to that point. But very quickly to address your point um, on the long-term symptoms of, uh, you know, these are just the people are just beginning to learn about what these are just because of the, the phase we're in. We're now in a phase where we've had this with us for about seven or eight months. And mm. um, many people have gone through the illness, you know, ranging from mild to moderate to severe uh, like yourself, and then have begun to emerge um, after that recovery and begun to experience some of these symptoms. One of the most important symptoms is, is fatigue, you know, ongoing fatigue. People continue to have uh, tiredness, weakness for long periods of time. Um, there's also this confusion that I mentioned earlier. Some people may have some, uh, you know, on and off spells of confusion long term. Uh, you know, and um, that's becoming more and more recognized, you know, neurological uh, or, or nerve system brain type symptoms um, that linger for a while. Um, some less, much less uh, severe issues like hoarseness of voice and um, ongoing uh, loss of appetite and so on may, may go on for short periods of time. Um, you know, the loss of smell and loss of taste also may linger. Uh, for some time. But this is a very moving target because we are learning more and more. I can be sure that one month, two months, three months from now, we will have much more evidence of how things are uh, are going in patients with uh, COVID-19 um, and some of the long-term uh, effects of this disease. Now, your second question was, um, remind me what your second question was, please. I know you had a second part to the question. Oh, yes. Whether I, I can get it again. Whether you can get it again. So, so again, um, I'm going to go as quickly as I can through this because it's another very um, contentious subject area where we are still learning. Um, mm-hmm. We um, know that being able to be reinfected uh, and get the disease again is one way you can get uh, the disease again. Secondly, if for some reason the virus is lingering in your body and you get better, 
clinically, but it's hiding somewhere um, theoretically. But in this case, we know that you don't get a, a, a virus that hides like you do in TB, for example, tuberculosis. We know that it's a question of whether you get reinfected uh, again. And that all goes back to how immune are you to reinfection once you've had the virus and you've had the disease. We know that a lot of times you can measure those antibodies we talked about. If the IgG response is an effective or what we call neutralizing IgG response, which it doesn't have to be, but if it is, and it lasts for several weeks, months, years, for that period of time, you're likely to be immune from getting uh, a disease, disease again. Um, for specifically for SARS-CoV-2, we don't know how long the short-term immunity lasts. We know that there are people who have these neutralizing antibodies. We know that at best, from what we know now, it's two to three months. If you look at SARS-CoV-1 or the original SARS, um, that came up in 2002 to 2003 in certain countries. And you look at MERS, the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome that came up in uh, you know, the late 2000s um, in uh, the Middle East, they're both related co coronaviruses to SARS-CoV-2. They're very much related genetically and otherwise. Um, and for those two diseases, the other two, we know that the short-term immunity lasts only two to three months. That's clearly defined for those. Um, for this, we don't know yet, but what I would mm -hmm. say is highly unlikely that you get reinfected, certainly in the short to medium term, because we're not seeing that from an epidemiological standpoint. The epidemiology of the disease doesn't suggest that people are getting reinfected um, in the short to, 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 to medium term that we, have, we know now. What's going to happen a year from now? Is it going to be seasonal like the flu? And, you know, it keeps coming back and changing itself genetically and the same people who had it last year get it again. The jury is still out on that. It's still possible that that could happen. So mm, this is excellent. why it's a complicated answer. Okay. Mm. Okay. Everybody, Dr. Dacosta is a member of Global Alliance of Zambian Healthcare Professionals. In partnership with Atlanta Zambian Women with Influence, they are having Let's Talk COVID on August 20th. Uh, 2020 at 3 p.m. Eastern on Channel A TV. Uh, Dr. Kajila is uh, part of this team, and they are. Uh, I would encourage all of us to participate and to make ourselves available to get more information about this. Uh, Dr. Kajila, did you want to say more about this? Can you hear me? Yes, can I can hear me. Oh, great, great. First of all, before I comment on that, I just want to really congratulate you, Nathan, Zander Block Talk Radio, and, and Dr. DaCosta, Chris, for such an informative um, meeting. And uh, I really hope there's a lot of view viewers or listeners out there, especially from the motherland, to uh, hear this uh, extremely uh, talented guy and expert. And uh, I think there's a lot of... Um, skepticism, cynicism regarding uh, information coming out from the West. And uh, a lot of people on the continent feel a sense of suspicion. So it's very important for us as uh, Africans, Zambians, and, and other Africans to, to speak to our people as well so they can hear from us. Um, and hopefully they'll believe we are unbiased in our views. 
that we haven't been bought. <laughs> so, Chris, first of all, you've done a fantastic job. Uh, just quickly on what you, uh, on the COVID uh, talk, it's on 16th August, not 20th. I, I don't know if I heard correctly, but it's 16th. And we've uh, passed it around the uh, Facebook and other media, so yeah, make a date with us. Um, so okay. my uh, point here was just to, if Chris could touch on prophylaxis, because I feel this has yeah. been a controversial issue, especially vis-a-vis uh, HCQ, uh, hydroxychloroquine. Mm-hmm. Uh, 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 chloroquine. So, and yes. uh, because you talked of treatments, and I think you deliberately mm-hmm. left the, the, the controversial one um, yeah. for later. <laughs> so, if, before this. Uh, <laughs> program ends, I hope you touch on that. Yeah, that's my final question, actually. Uh, yes, let's okay. do this. Okay. Dr. Dacosta, yeah. we need to arrange for a part two to this discussion where we can <laughs> even let cool. our brother, our brother, mm-hmm. Longwe, to short of share in details his experience, if that is okay yes. with him. Let's conclude mm-hmm. by what Dr. Kajila has read, okay? There's been a yes. lot of talk yes. about hydroxychloroquine, paracetamol, mm-hmm. vitamin, whatever. Could you address yes. that? And we can end with that yes. for now. We shall arrange for a part two some other yeah. day. Yes, I think this is a case of saving the best for last because this is the <laughs> most controversial area of, of, of the whole COVID-19 um, thing is just this chloroquine, hydroxychloroquine. So very quickly, so we, we know that chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine is a drug that's been used for many, many years um, in malaria, quite safely in malaria. Um, it's also used in patients who have what's known as lupus, uh, you know, which is a, a bad disease that affects the uh, joints, the skin, the kidneys, etc., and also rheumatoid arthritis, things like that. So it, it is a drug that is being used. Um, you know, it's not just taken off the shelf but it's being used for other indications. Um, now, we know that for sure, these drugs, they actually do have antiviral activity um, that has been shown in the lab. It's been shown that they can kill viruses like influenza virus, chikungunya virus, uh, you know, even the, the seasonal coronaviruses. We know that there are seven coronaviruses that affect humans, by the way. The, the three I mentioned in relation to the, the epidemics, but also there are four others that cause common colds and that circulate. And, and we know that uh, chloroquine has been shown in the lab to kill these viruses. Um, it's also been shown to have effects on SARS-CoV-2 in, 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 in the lab situation. And what is speculated is that how it works is it actually can block the binding of the virus to the receptors. These receptors are present in all the cells in our respiratory tract, in our nose, in our back of our mouth, on the lungs, and also spread on, in, in other organs in the body. And it actually has been shown that it actually blocks, uh, it can block binding. But beyond that, once the virus has bound to the receptor and enters those cells, it then gets swallowed up into some, you know, circular uh, container called an endosome, and then then it gets fused with another circular container called a lysosome that then breaks down the virus. And it's been shown that chloroquine, hydroxychloroquine, they actually block that process um, uh, as well. They interfere with that. They they also Mm. interfere with the receptor itself. So they have specific effects that make sense when it comes to using them potentially in this disease. Here is the problem. The problem is that a lot of these things rely on the virus as I said, and its process of 
attacking to the cells, the receptor entering the cells, and beginning to disrupt the cells. But once the virus enters the cell, it triggers a cascade of other events that include inflammation and also what we call coagulopathy, I mentioned before, that clotting uh, around the body, that no matter how much you attack the virus, you're not going to influence that. There's a point of no return. And that explains why, more than likely, a lot of times the way chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine have been used, they haven't had effect in those who are actually beyond a certain point. Now, let me get to Dr. Kazila's point about prophylaxis, preventing this. Again, the issue is when you use uh, chloroquine as prophylaxis, uh, you basically are exposing an individual to a drug that has got what we call a narrow therapeutic range. So that is the difference between a dose of chloroquine that may help you and the dose that may cause harm is very narrow. And we don't really, you know, there, there is no clear-cut uh, drug regimen to use for prophylaxis, even if you use a small dose. And some people have developed a regimen. In some people, that may be toxic. In others, it may not be. So this is why from the very beginning, you had all these reports of people using chloroquine and having side effects. Studies were done, for instance, in Brazil, where they used fairly high doses and, and found that there were cardiac effects. This is one of the biggest problems you have with chloroquine. And that mm. gave it a bad mm. name. But okay. I can say that right now there are about 185 studies going on that are being conducted, and I'll do this very quickly, still on hydroxychloroquine chloroquine to see where it's going to fit. And the likelihood is it may have a fit somewhere, but the majority of mm -hmm. people won't benefit from it just because of the reasons I gave you, the technical reasons, scientific reasons I gave you. I, I, I'm going to stop at that point because there's so much more to say about this. We could probably pick yes. up in the next meeting, and I know that we're running out of time. Yeah, we, we, we need to end here. All I'm this is what I want to say as we conclude this. Ladies and gentlemen, as of today, three-quarters of a million people have died worldwide, 721,000. COVID is not a hoax. Don't listen to the politicians. Listen to the health scientists and health care experts on this topic. All right, Dr. D'Agosta, we do thank you for taking the time to share with us on this. And what we shall do is we shall work with Dr. D'Agosta to see if he can come back and sort of we continue the discussion on helping our community. And we can see also... If our brother, Dr. Longwe, can also join us and uh, share his experience and some of the things he may want to say. Dr. Christopher, thank you. Absolutely. Thank you very much uh, for inviting me. It's been my pleasure. We're looking forward. We shall share this link, everybody, for those that have missed the show and let them listen. Let's go back in for Open Forum. Thank you. Bye-bye.